Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And let's begin today's live Lord's Day service from verse 1. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go. And with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. First Corinthians makes it very clear that the Jews are entitled to a sign. And during the last chapter or two, when Moses was told that the Lord, L-O-R-D, meaning Jehovah, had ordered Moses and Aaron, two blood brothers, to speak to Pharaoh to make it crystal clear that it was time to let the Jews go. One of the first questions or responses from the mouth of Pharaoh, like Pilate would say, what is truth? And of course, truth was right in front of Pilate. One of the first things that Pharaoh would say to Moses and Aaron was, who is the Lord? Yes, I've heard about the Lord, but I haven't seen the Lord. Once again, going back to the 400 year silence from Genesis to Exodus or Malachi to Matthew. And here the Lord is speaking to Moses. And when we speak about intimacy, you don't get much closer than this. And here the Lord says to Moses how he will use a strong hand concerning power, of course, might. If you want to suggest irresistible grace, okay, you can suggest it from this particular verse. But when it comes to Calvinism's irresistible grace, such as phony, such as fake. But when the Lord decides to do something like his directive will, it will happen. And here it speaks about with a strong hand, shall he, Pharaoh, let them go? Well, of course and drive them out of his land. So this final push is about to begin. This final crescendo. This has been building up for the last five chapters, and this will be week number 11. Look at verse 2. And God spake unto Moses, and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. We call this progressive revelation. Go back to Genesis, read it carefully, all 50 chapters. And the Lord speaks to different people during different times. And he is known as Elohim. He is known as God. But the term Jehovah, like Yah, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, another term which is used uh, for the one true God. But in your King James Bible, the term Jehovah appears seven times, and I'll discuss that in a few moments. So the Lord is saying to Moses, let's get a bit more personal, let's get closer. If you think of John leaning on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a great picture of intimacy. And unfortunately, some perverted people come along with corrupt minds, and they read into that something which they should not, and they make wicked insinuations, which I won't go into this morning, but that's a picture of Christ in the church. John, of course, is a picture of the church. Revelation chapter 4. And Revelation chapter 4, John is removed from the earth, picturing the church, picturing the rapture of the church, of course. But when John literally, physically laid his head on the breast, on the chest of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a picture of intimacy. And here's something very similar is taking place. But on top of that, a name change is about to take place. But by my name Jehovah. Was I not known to them. So Jehovah. 
as much history, much background to Jehovah, is the Tetragrammaton for Lord, L-O-R-D. And if you have a King James Bible, every time the word Lord appears, I think over five and a half thousand times, behind the term Lord is Jehovah. But the word Jehovah appears, like I say, seven times in the Old Testament. It appears four times in its entirety, like Jehovah. You've got Jehovah Jireh, you've got Jehovah Nissi, and you've got Jehovah Shalom, meaning Jehovah is peace. So seven times in the Old Testament, and only in the Old Testament, does the term Jehovah appear, which causes somewhat of a problem for the Jehovah's Witnesses, because if you have a New World Translation Bible, if you go to the New Testament and look up the word Lord, they take the word Lord out and put Jehovah in there, which is a travesty, because if you have a Greek New Testament, every time the word Lord appears in the New Testament, the main uh, Greek word for Lord is kurios, and kurios simply means Lord. You won't find Jehovah. You won't even find it transliterated from Hebrew into Greek, and then from such into English. The word Jehovah is, strictly speaking, an Old Testament description. Look at verse 4, please. And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of the pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. My covenant, my agreement concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from verse 3, it's all about the land. It's all about the land. And, of course, you know as a Bible believer that the land is still being fought over. The United Nations have passed many, many uh, statements and uh, condemnations against Israel's right to be in the land, Israel's right to defend herself. They very rarely speak about North Korea. They very rarely speak about Kuwait or Iran, but they are obsessed when it comes to Israel. I have also established my covenant with them, verse 4, to give them the land of Canaan, like the Jews, like the patriarchs. If you are a Philistine living in Israel, or if you are a Catholic living in Israel, or if you are a Protestant living in Israel, you are living there at the bequest of Israel. You are living there as as a, a guest of Israel, at the good pleasure of Israel, And never forget that. I know Catholics own most of Israel, but the land was given to the Jews. And one day they will have to give an account of themselves to Jehovah as to how they have conducted themselves over the years. And the Catholics will have to give an account of themselves to Jehovah as well concerning the mass purchase of many parts of Capernaum. The land of their pilgrimage wherein they were strangers. Peter speaks about... Those of us which are saved being uh, pilgrims, strangers on this earth. And also Hebrew speaks about many of the greats going through very difficult and trying times. And how the world wasn't worthy of them. Look at verse 5 please. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel. Whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. I have heard the groanings. I have waited for over 400 years. I have sat back. I have allowed the generation uh, from Joseph to die out. I've allowed the birth of Moses to take place. And we've already spoken about Moses being a prince, being the Pharaoh in waiting, if you will. And over 430 years, many Jews have uh, come and gone. 
and now due to the groaning, the continual groaning of the children of Israel, and if you think of that text from Romans chapter 8, how the entire creation is groaning, not just mankind, but the animal world, and it speaks about the children of Israel groaning and being kept in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So the term groaning uh, and also the term bondage is going to feed into burden, burdens from verse 6. And for today we would say this, we would say that once the Lord has saved you, he has saved you, he has delivered you from being a slave to Satan. And now you are saved, you shouldn't be following and listening to the words of men, but the words of God. And if you have been struggling with anxiety, depression or suicidal thoughts, and I'll speak about the latter very shortly, there is hope for you. 6. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I am your God. He wasn't the God of the Egyptians. He wasn't the God of the Gentiles. He was the God of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. The root is holy. The root sustains the branch. If the root was to just wither and die, Romans chapter 11, the branches would snap off and we would all die. It's as simple as that. And that's why it's absurd when you hear uh, Bible believers, many times Gentiles, being anti-Semitic, attacking Jewry. And yet, when they do that, they are really attacking themselves, because the church, for now, is in mystery form, if you will. Israel may be in unbelief. And yes, we know the devil, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, has blinded the minds of unbelieving Israel. But according to Romans 9 and Romans 11, uh, the Jews are hibernating, if you will. And they are awaiting the return of the Lord. So we don't want to allow ourselves to get caught up with a lot of this rhetoric which is going on concerning many well-known so-called Christian celebrities attacking Israel. Yes, it's absolutely right to witness to Jews. And I've mentioned this many times over 16 years of being a saved sinner. And we shouldn't not witness to Jews. But here you've got burdens, uh, bondage found in verses 5 and 6 concerning real slavery real slavery and if we were to spiritualize that we would speak about this from the standpoint those of us that were in bondage to the devil like i say and the lord has saved us and made us slaves to righteousness no longer slaves to sin and i would take you to me for a people verse 7 and i will be to you a god a god and you shall know that i am the lord your god you won't need to hear about me anymore you will see me You will see me do miracles. You will see me destroy a nation from within. You will see Jesus Christ walk the earth for three and a half years. You will see sick people being restored. You will see dead people being raised up from the dead. You will see uh, people having their eyesight restored, hearing restored, so on and so forth. And like it's been said before, that you couldn't die in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was impossible to die in the presence of a personification of life. I am the Lord, your God, concerning Israel, but for today he is our Lord God, if we're born again, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Egypt being a type of the world, 
And when I got saved, when you got saved, when we all got saved, we were delivered from Egypt. Egypt, of course, is a type of the world. Going back to the statement from Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son. So these seven verses, just allow me to very briefly recap these seven verses from Exodus chapter 6. And again, this is week number 11, are concerning Israel, the creation of a nation. The Lord God is moments away from intervening, breaking the back of Pharaoh. And over in Romans, it says, for this cause, have I raised him up. The Lord knew through foreknowledge that Pharaoh would never budge, would never repent like Pilate. And according to tradition, Pilate committed suicide. And I want to discuss that in a few moments. And these well-to-do people like King Herod I, King Herod II, and King Herod III, and again, you got three pharaohs in the Old Testament, were never going to be saved. They were always going to be enemies of the Lord. And yet, in spite of that, Almighty God showed them grace and mercy. It speaks about uh, Herod observing John the Baptist, very intrigued by John the Baptist, didn't want to imprison John the Baptist, didn't want to have him beheaded like the Antichrist will do to those that refuse to take the mark of the beast in the tribulation. And yet due to his wife, his uh, brother's ex-wife that he married, due to his wife's pressure and her daughter's pressure, Herod buckled. And unfortunately, uh, most men, if you didn't know, are weak men. Most men are very weak. Most men listen to their wives. And you know what they say, the women wear the trousers in the house. But these seven verses are building up to something which the Jews could never have ever imagined in their wildest days of hope and uh, desperation. That one day the deliverer, being Moses, would arrive. He would come from within their own folds. Deuteronomy 18 speaks about one day a deliverer will arrive from within. And that deliverer, of course, is Jesus Christ. And he would do signs and wonders and he would delegate some of those signs and wonders to his apostles and his disciples and by the end of the book of acts nobody is doing miracles nobody's being healed paul was almost blind some of his best friends were very sick and that's a picture that the lord is now reducing and revoking the signs and gifts the miracles because for 30 years the jews have been preaching to the jews and the gentiles and the apostles, after a 30-year preaching period, uh, had only been able to reach so many levels of success. And because people were turning away from the Lord, the Lord turned away from them. And now we really do live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 8, please. And I will bring you in unto the land, concern the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Now this is fascinating. Read it again. And I will bring you in unto the land. Physical land, okay. Concerning the which I did swear, I promised to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What the Lord promises, he won't go back on, he won't renege. And I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Heritage, inheritance. Keep your hand there and go to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, 
and I remember a story being relayed to me many years ago concerning one of my late relatives who was a solicitor and he said this he said that during his many years as a solicitor uh, many people would go into his office uh, wanting to know what had been left to them concerning wills uh, concerning what uh, deceased clients had left to family members and this uh, late relative of ours a solicitor by trade said over many many years he saw people going into his office with great expectations like that term from Charles Dickens and these people would go in rubbing their hands thinking I'm going to get this I'm going to get that and within two or three minutes of this late relative of ours reading out the wills many times it uh, became apparent that those presents had been left nothing they were shocked and there were tears there were arguings and fightings I mean literal fightings people fighting each other desperate to get money which had been left to third parties I think it was either Betty Davis or Joan Crawford who was estranged from one of their daughters it may have been Joan Crawford and Joan Crawford if you don't know was a very well-known American actress from the 1940s to the 1960s as was Betty Davis and if you're not a movie aficionado you won't know these women but if you are a movie buff, you will know who these women were. And at the height of their careers, they were very, very popular. I think Crawford made over 100 movies. She was an A-star actress, as was Davis. And they had a good 30-year run, which was quite remarkable. Most careers burn out within a decade or two. But these two women made a lot of movies. And I think it was Joan Crawford's daughter who wrote a book the year before last and she said a few things first of all she said that her mother was a witch as was uh, betty davis but on top of that she said that her mother had uh, ostracized her because she was very critical of her mother her mother was very uh, conniving very manipulative and would uh, set out to deceive friends and family and to cut a long story short she cut her daughter out of her will her daughter lost her inheritance and I seem to remember reading it was around 25 to 30 million dollars big money Ephesians chapter 5 Ephesians chapter 5 look at verse 3 please but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient but rather giving of thanks for this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance hath any inheritance hath any inheritance in the kingdom of christ and of god if you were to contact five churches in your town and ask them to explain those verses to you i would guarantee it i would put money on it although i'm not a gambler but i would suggests very strongly that out of those five churches from any denomination if you were to ask them to exegete those verses for you they would say that such is in reference to your salvation and it's not if you think of covetousness covetousness is lusting lusting is coveting which feeds into jealousy jealousy lusting coveting therefore you can be jealous of a person a person's property, and a person's privilege. I caught an interview last night with a very um, militant 
member of the Black Lives Matter movement in America. It's a very powerful far left wing movement and it's growing every day. In the UK, the equivalent would be the Socialist Workers' Party. And this woman, a member of this very militant anti-white person movement, was being interviewed. And uh, to cut a long story short, and just to give a very brief overview, one of the reasons why this movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, is growing is really down to jealousy. This group of mainly black people are jealous of the white man, they are jealous of white people, and there was a great movement in the UK as well, I'm afraid to say at the moment, uh, against white, Protestant, heterosexual men. In fact, I caught another interview last night, and a guy made an interesting statement concerning the American president, and he said this, he said, yes, the American president is doing very good, so on and so forth, but I got something that I want to criticize him over. And he was asked to explain that. And he said, well, his favorite daughter has been given the task of representing women around the world, like a feminist speaking up for women. But what about the boys? Why not appoint one of his sons to speak up for boys? And this is a very, very valid point. Boys are growing up today with no fathers or very weak fathers. They need strong male mentors. And I thought this guy was absolutely right to flag up the problem concerning, uh, on the one hand, pushing women, and when you do that, neglecting men. Why not push boys and girls? Why not be fair to both of them? But this Black Lives Matter movement is, I would suggest, guilty of coveting. They are jealous. Jealous of the white man, jealous of what the white man has been able to do over the past 200 years, and in the UK, their counterparts will be the Socialist Workers' Party, mainly made up of white people, I should say, and they come at this from a slightly different angle. They are very jealous of the Conservative Party, the party in government in the UK at the moment, and they are very jealous of the wealthy people in this country, uh, the 1%, I think, as they are called, and they want to smash uh, the wealth or the wealthy in this country. And, of course, you know, if you've ever studied history, that the moment you overthrow the wealthy, you create chaos. You have a brain drain, and most of the brains will go to other countries. But the reason why I wanted to go to Ephesians 5, uh, 3, 4, and 5 is because what Paul is telling you, if you didn't already know, is that if you are a saved person and you start to live after the flesh, and I gave you some, like coveting, uh, also foolish talking, a lot of foolish talking, like people say, I no longer sin. They say that they are now sinless. That is foolish talking. Or jesting, like making silly and innuendo remarks, uh, dirty jokes on a regular basis. If you continue to do that, as a saved person, you risk losing your millennial inheritance. Go to uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse uh, 22, please. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You will receive the reward of the inheritance. You won't receive 
the reward of everlasting life. You don't deserve everlasting life. Everlasting life is a gift. But when it comes to the kingdom, the inheritance, you can, on the one hand, receive it, or you can revoke it. It can be taken from you. Go back to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, look at verse 8 again, please. And I'll bring you in unto the land. But you're going to have to fight for it. You'll have to form into armies under the leadership of, of uh, Joshua and Moses. And for today, if you are a saved sinner, you'll have to fight your old man. And one of the reasons why so many Christians are weak and sickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is because they don't want to fight the old man. They don't want to pick up their crosses every day. They don't want to say no to their flesh. They want to rub along with the world. They don't want to be the odd one out. Concern the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for inheritance. I am the Lord. So, allow me to say this and I will close for today. The land of Israel was, on the one hand, a gift given from Jehovah to the Jews. But it was conditional. They had to go in and fight for it. And I mean literal fighting. Hand-to-hand fighting, killing, if necessary, and their prophets would lead from the front. People like Samuel, David, and other greats. Contrast that to the spiritual battle that we have to fight today as saved people. If we don't fight the battle, uh, Ephesians 5, 3-6, and Colossians 3, 23-25, we risk losing our millennial inheritance. A couple of weeks ago, an awful story broke concerning the suicide and the double murder of Peter Rutman Jr. And I've been monitoring this online over the last couple of weeks. A very shocking story. And I am still somewhat surprised that some of the King James brethren have either decided not to speak about it or don't care. Well, I do care. I want to spend a few moments now just discussing this very briefly. And God willing, during our next outreach, we will sit down. And I will discuss the subject of suicide in more detail. But I want to say this, that it's obvious to me that Peter Upman Jr. had his breaking point. He couldn't go on any longer. His father made the statement many years ago that all of his children were saved. And I would suggest this, that if you are a parent, if you have children, you know whether or not your children are saved. If you don't know whether or not your children are saved... If you have spent time speaking to your children, if your children aren't able to answer simple questions, or if your children seem to be unsure as to whether or not they are saved, then they are not saved. They are unsaved. They are lost. But if you have been able to speak to your children, and if your children have said to yes, I do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have trusted him as my saviour, and you believe that, you don't think your children are lying to you, or simply relaying something to you because they want you to hear, uh, what you need to hear you know people sometimes tell you what they want you to hear then you should say to yourself well that's good enough for me if you are trusting the blood if you have believed on the lord you are saved so therefore for Rutman senior to say many years ago over many years that all of his children were saved that's good enough for me unfortunately what normally happens is people many times christian people are very negative and they will say well clearly he wasn't saved to begin with Or he lost his salvation. Because in their minds they can't comprehend a saved person breaking, unable to go on any longer and just finishing his or her own life. In fact, if you are a man, you are four times more likely to kill yourself than a woman 
going back to the criticism and the legitimate criticism of Trump appointing his favourite daughter to speak up for women and children or uh, little girls, female rights, and yet what about appointing one of his sons to speak on behalf of men around the world, boys around the world? There's a war going on against men, and that war is going to deteriorate. But tragically, Peter Upman Jr. took his own life, and on top of that, if that wasn't bad enough, he killed, in fact, he murdered his two sons, both under 15 years of age. And I don't want to speak about this subject. It's a very difficult and depressing and distressing subject to speak about. But just because he was saved, based on his father's uh, statements concerning uh, his son and the other, I think he had five children with his first wife, just because he was a saved man doesn't mean that he couldn't go down that awful dark route. There have been many people, and I'll discuss this later, that have done the unthinkable. And they've taken their own lives, and in the case of Peter Upman Jr., he took his two sons out. He shot them dead. So I'm going to say this. If you are a saved person, why would you automatically think of this from a negative perspective? Why not give him the benefits of the doubt? Just because he did something which you would never do, and should never do, don't be of the opinion that he was an unsaved man. Or don't be so foolish as to suggest he lost his salvation. Approach it from the standpoint of Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, that it's quite likely that he has lost his millennial inheritance. In fact, I'll say this. I remember speaking to a friend of mine, a pastor, and I said this to him. I said, what do you tell your congregation, or how do you preach against sins, or how do you approach the standpoint or the subject of what happens when a saved person either buckles like this chap did, Rutman Jr., or backslides, and there are many people that are backsliding at the moment. What do you do with that? How do you explain that? Because you don't believe in the judgment seat of Christ, and Calvinists don't. You don't believe in the judgments, uh, the, the, the rewards, uh, the judgment seat, and Calvinists don't. You don't believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ, and Calvinists don't. So therefore, what do you preach, or how do you handle this very a sensitive subject. What do you do with people who live after the flesh? Or how do you approach a subject of this awful uh, account of a triple murder? That's what it was. It was a triple murder. He murdered himself and he murdered his two sons. And for maybe five or six seconds, he was absolutely silent. And he said, well, there's not really much I could say because we believe, meaning Calvinism or his Calvinist denomination, that once you are saved, you are kept saved, which is what we believe as well at this ministry. The difference between him and I is that I was able to say, well, for a saved person who messes up, if you will, and goes down the, the backslidden routes, or even worse than that, commits a triple murder, if they are saved, and that's the word, if they are saved. I don't know if he was saved or not, and neither do you. But if they were saved, they are still saved, but they will lose their millennial inheritance. They will lose their crowns, and they'll be stripped of everything. And First John chapter 3 speaks about such people arriving in the presence of the Lord, totally and absolutely ashamed and this calvinist this five-point calvinist couldn't offer me any good explanation as to what he would preach uh, to those of his own people that would make such an awful decision so the point i want to make and i'll close is that for the old testament there was a land to fight for a land to die for for new testament we fight from a spiritual perspective we don't fight with our physical hands we don't take weapons onto the streets we don't attack people with knives, guns, or sticks. Uh, we are fighting a spiritual war. 
But first of all, we are fighting against the old man, the old woman. And the problem, of course, with many saved people, like I said a few moments ago, is that they don't want to be the odd one out. They want to rub along with the world. And of course, once you rub along with the world, you start to compromise. And once you start to compromise, it's very difficult to reverse it. It's like it's been said before. It's very easy to put on weight, but it's very difficult to get it off. And if you start to backslide, and of course you know that sin is like junk food, it's very nice. It tastes very nice, but after a while, if you eat too much junk food, you get overweight, out of shape, and you become a layabout. And that's the same when it comes to those of us which are saved. If we start to backslide, if we start to do our own thing, we risk being, a, uh, being washed out and in some cases, and this is the worst possible case scenario, we end up uh, doing something as horrendous as Peter Upman Jr., killing himself and his two sons. And yes, we know Romans 8.28 is always there in the background, but we can, listen, we have free will. We can step out of the will of God whenever we want to. The angels had free will before the fall, and if they had free will, and they certainly do, or certainly did, we have free will as well. Before we were saved and after we are saved. And therefore, if something as disastrous as what took place around two weeks ago, that could happen to someone like that. It could happen to anyone. And that's why it's so important to guard your thoughts, your mind and your welfare. And like I say, if you don't uh, live it concerning your walk with the Lord, you will lose it. You will have your place in the millennial kingdom revoked. And you're still saved by the blood of Christ, and you are kept saved uh, by the blood of Christ. Romans 8 speaks about being forever safe with the Lord, nothing separating us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But when it comes to the here and now, our ongoing battles with the old man, the world and the devil, is a whole different ball game. So take Exodus 6, 8, and cross-reference that to Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and you get two lands. You get a physical land, Back in the Old Testament, you get a spiritual land, New Jerusalem, for the future. And of course, New Jerusalem will come down from heaven. It will hover over the new earth. And there is discussion, there is debate amongst the brethren as to whether or not it actually lands on the earth or just floats over the earth. But nevertheless, there's going to be a lot of coming and going from those on the new earth to New Jerusalem and vice versa. The worst thing, if you are saved, is to miss out on New Jerusalem. If you are saved, and as I say, if you're not careful, you risk losing your millennial inheritance. And I base that on Exodus chapter 6, and Ephesians 5, and Colossians chapter 3. So we are working our way through the book of Exodus, my second favorite Old Testament book. And we were able to cover the first eight verses from Exodus chapter 6. But I uh, just want to start... Uh, this morning's service of a May, just asking you to go back and look at a few verses with me and allow me to drill a little deeper. Uh, Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, look at verse 2 again, please. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, like present tense. Jesus Christ would say, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. And I appeared unto Abraham unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, which in Hebrew is El Shaddai, but by my name Jehovah, also known as Yahweh, was I not known to them. So you will see straight away that when it comes to names such 
will be very important. If you know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows your name. And over in John chapter 10, he makes it very clear that uh, we know him and he knows us. And if somebody else comes along like the Antichrist, we will never follow such a person. But there's one uh, word I want to uh, draw your attention to from verse 6. Verse 6, wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Again, present tense, like I am the Lord, and I change not. I am the Lord, triune God. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. Redeem. That word redeem. The term redeem appears over 125 times from memory in the Old Testament. And here the term redeem, which appears for the first time in the Old Testament, simply means to redeem from slavery, like physical slavery. But... If you keep your hand there and go to First Peter, First uh, Peter uh, chapter one, First uh, Peter chapter one, and if you cast your eye over uh, verse eighteen, First Peter one, verse eighteen, it says this: For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. So when it comes to First Peter one eight, uh, going into nineteen twenty. And 21, the term redeem simply means to release on receipt of a ransom being paid or to liberate, to cause to be released to oneself by a payment or a ransom, to redeem, to deliver from evils of every kind, internal or external. 18, going to 19, going to 20, going to 21 makes the case very clearly that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And I never tire of saying that. John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You can't say that about yourself. You can't say that you are without blemish or without spot. No matter how holy you are, and yes, you are told to be holy, you are told to be perfect, as the Lord God is, like concerning uh, your conduct. Light, don't be double-minded, not in reference to being sinless. Let's not kid ourselves. But when it comes to presenting ourselves, our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice, we are told to abstain from all appearances of evil. But it comes down to redemption, being saved, being uh, brought back. And the story was given some years ago of a young boy who had a beloved boat. And he was very fond of this boat. And he built this boat up from nothing. And every chance he got, he would polish his boat. He would spend a lot of time cleaning up his boat. This was just a little boy, less than 10. But he thought the world of his boat. And one day he lost his boat. And he went out looking for his boat. And he checked all of the streams, all of the lakes in his uh, area. And many, many months later, he discovered his boat. And in the distance, he could see a boy playing with his boat. And he said to the boy, that's my boat. And the boy said to him, well, it's my boat now. 
uh, finders keepers kind of thing. Uh, it's my boat now. And the boy said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, I will buy it back f- uh, from you. Although it's my boat, and although I could just snatch it back from you, I will buy it back from you. And of course, you know that's a picture of our salvation. We are made in the image of God. We fell through our four parents, our forefathers, like Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived, and she was the first to be deceived. And once she fell, Adam uh, fell as well. And once they both fell, there was no going back. They went from being innocent to being guilty. And therefore, it would appear that once they fell, uh, we all fall, uh, vicariously, of course. And the Lord says this to himself, Well, I will buy back my creation. Go to First uh, Timothy. So a ransom has to be paid, like a buyback deal, like the boy with the boat. He finds his boat after a long period of time, his beloved boat, a boat which he built from scratch, a boat that he would maintain. But the boat went missing. He lost the boat. Or maybe the boat was stolen. We don't know, but the boat was later discovered and it was uh, made very clear that somebody would have to uh, do something to uh, buy back the boat. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, look at verse 6 if you will. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So the boy buys back the boat and the boat is now his. The boat is safe and sound. Jesus Christ buys us back. He becomes a ransom. Now the devil has some kind of a hold over mankind, which I don't really understand, and therefore the Lord has to buy back his property. Go to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews uh, chapter two, Hebrews chapter two. Look at verse fourteen, please. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There's our word again, bondage. I mentioned that last week, bondage, ransom, redeemed. For verily, verse 16, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Going back to the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, like he will cover our sins, past, present, and future. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, he is able to understand them that are tempted. So... I'll give you one more scripture. I'm going to go back to Exodus chapter 6. Go to Revelation uh, chapter 5. Revelation uh, chapter 5. Look at verse 9, please. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. Go back to Exodus chapter 6, please. So, from Exodus chapter 6, Almighty God, referred to as El Shaddai, and he has many Hebrew uh, names, which I will uh, discuss over the next few weeks. 
He is going to redeem his people. He is going to redeem his people from physical slavery. Exodus chapter 6, like verse 6. But for here and now, he will redeem us in a spiritual sense. He will save us from our sins. The book of Acts speaks about uh, being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Before you are saved, if you are saved, you are a child of the devil. John chapter 8, Jesus Christ would say to the Jews that you are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. And therefore you are either in the family of the Lord Jesus Christ or you are in the family of the devil. So redemption, payback, going back to burdens, bondage. It's all leading up to the arrival of the Messiah. So last week, like I say, we were able to cover the first eight verses dealing with the covenant. The covenant that Jehovah would give to the Jews, not the nation of Islam, not the black Hebrewites, not the Calvinists either. And I say that because from the book of Revelation, it speaks about the synagogue of Satan. And most people, when they hear that term, synagogue of Satan, will suggest it is in reference to wicked, unbelieving Jews. But it goes much more deeper than that. If you think of replacement theology, if you are a Calvinist or if you have been raised in a Calvinist system, or if you are a Catholic, or if you are just a typical Protestant, the chances are you are a follower, you are a believer of replacement theology. And replacement theology, if you don't know, simply means that the church, have you want to define the church, has replaced Israel. They all believe that. The Mormons believe that. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that. Most of Christendom believe that. And I think that's really what is going on from the book of Revelation. That's the real definition of the synagogue of Satan. Of course, we can't and we won't roll out hostile and unbelieving Israel, very much a thorn in the side of the church. Paul would speak against such. Peter would speak against such. But never forget what Christ was saying on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed for their forgiveness and the Lord forgave them. Uh, for their involvement in his treacherous trial and subsequent uh, crucifixion. So just keep all those thoughts in mind, because every so often we have to remind ourselves as to what we're up against. And one final thought uh, from verses 6 to 8. Seven times God says, I will. If you contrast that to Exodus, make that, uh, make that uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14. The devil speaks about... I will ascend up here, I will ascend up there, I will do this, I will do that. Five times the devil says what he wants to do, and ultimately he wants to be like the Most High. And for here and now he uh, he very much has the world in his pocket. Look at verse 9 please from Exodus chapter 6. And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearken not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. So the throwback goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would arrive, he would preach to the Jews. And John chapter 6 is probably one of the clearest chapters in scripture concerning the problems that he was up against. And time after time, they would question his credentials. They would make uh, cruel statements against his lineage, like uh, they would do with King James when he was first born. And Jesus, like James, would shut their mouths. Jesus, like James, would continue to press on, push on. But here Moses is trying to free the children of Israel, from physical bondage, whereas Jesus Christ wants to free us from a spiritual bondage. And he would do so via the new birth, but 
like I've said for many times over the last probably 16 years now, the reality is that for those of us which are saved, sometimes we don't want to be freed from our spiritual bondage. I caught an interview last weekend, and it was a very interesting interview. A conservative a commentator, religious, I'm not sure if he's saved, and he was speaking to a woman who had been a victim of abuse. I think it was sexual abuse from memory. And he spoke to this woman and he said, you need to forgive your uh, attacker. You need to go back and clear up uh, unfinished business with your parents. Otherwise, you never have uh, closure. You never have healing, so on and so forth. And for three or four seconds, maybe five seconds, the woman sat in silence thinking about what was being said to her. And I thought to myself, she doesn't want to forgive. She wants to remain a victim. Some people feed off that. Some people like being victims. Some people like to retain that pain and that uh, grief in ways I don't really understand. He was right in what he was saying to her, but if the truth were known, I think she was not yet ready to forgive and forget. And I thought, what a sad situation. Moses spake so unto the children of Israel. So Moses is the middleman, almighty God, rarely spoke to the people directly in scripture going back to if you speak to muslims they say well we can go to allah directly we don't have to go through uh, some third party that's a lie they have to go through muhammad they have to listen to what muhammad said if you ever lived of course and catholics of course you know have to go through the mass uh, mormons have to go through the lds system the jehovah's witnesses have to go through the watchtower system you won't find many religious systems especially from christendom which allow you to go straight to God without going through any third party. God Almighty, uh, like I say, will speak through third parties. He will speak through Moses. He will speak through the kings down the line and also the prophets. And ultimately, he will speak to the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are sinful people. He is sinless. He doesn't have a sin problem. And he has chosen to speak uh, through third parties. And here Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, but they hearken not unto Moses for anguish of spirits and for cruel bondage. So they have a free will. And I want to say this time after time, because every so often, in fact, far too often, Calvinists come along and they like to quote Luther, who wrote a very famous book, which escapes me. And in that very famous book, he says that, uh, or he would say that there is no such thing as free will that the Lord can uh, override the will of mankind, which is actually true, of course he can. But that's not what happens when it comes to salvation. And if you really study Calvinism, you will discover within five minutes that it's very similar to Islam. They also believe that not only is their God sovereign, but that their God can take people out of paradise and put them back into hell. How about that? At least when we get saved, we are forever with our one true God. Look at verse 10, please. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Go in, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. So time after time, the Lord wants to give Pharaoh the chance to release his people. If you think of Jesus and Judas, those two would have many discussions. One of my projects down the line is to profile Judas Iscariot, and Judas was a very interesting character, a very dark character. He's called a devil from uh, John chapter 6. But nonetheless, he had opportunities like the apostles did. He would do signs and miracles. 
like the apostles would do. He had free will. He had a conscience. In fact, his conscience got the better of him, and he went out and hung himself. He would hang himself due to the grief. He couldn't live with it. Go in, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now, of course, Jehovah knew that Pharaoh would never release the children of Israel, but he wants the children of Israel to see Moses in action. He wanted Jesus Christ to preach for three and a half years. He wanted the disciples and the apostles to see the Lord in action. If you read the New Testament, if you read the Gospels especially, it's very difficult to critique Christ. If you're an unsaved person, and if you casually uh, glimpse or casually uh, take a look at the Gospels, it's so difficult to criticize Christ. Time after time, he lived by example. He said what he meant, meant what he said. He wasn't a hypocrite. And like I say, God Almighty wanted Jesus Christ to be the way that he was so the apostles could see him in action. They could mark that good man. And Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at verse 12, please. And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? Simon Peter would say to Jesus, Lord, depart from me, I am an unclean man. Isaiah would say to the Lord, he was a man of unclean lips. Also you will read how all of our righteousnesses is as filthy rags. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why callest thou me good? There is none good. But God only. And yet, if you were to listen to certain religious people, it could be from the world of Islam, it could be from holiness camps, they actually believe that they are all pretty decent people. In fact, I caught another interview uh, the night before last from a British chap uh, from the alt right movement, a movement which is gaining ground uh, more in America than it is in the UK. And this alt right man. He said he was religious, he said he was a Christian, but I don't think he was. Five or six times he said, I am a moral man. I am a moral man, a very moral man, and I'm very moral. And I thought to myself, you're not a moral man. Nobody's moral. I mean, who are these people trying to kid? You might be a better man. You might be uh, the sort of guy who doesn't drink, smoke, or gamble, but you're not moral. Jesus Christ said, why callest thou me good? None is good but one, that is God. Every man will proclaim his own goodness. And this is the problem. And I hear this time after time. People holding themselves up as this very moral person. And yet, if you ask them to define sin, they can't do it. If you ask them to define the atonement, they can't do it. In fact, I've seen far too many interviews in recent months. And nearly every single time when these guests are being interviewed about the alt-right or conservative social values or these social social justice warriors sjws call them what you will if the host didn't ask them about their religious beliefs they wouldn't tell you it's only because they're being asked that they feel they have an obligation to tell you if you spoke to me 17 years ago i would have said to you then that i was a christian but i wasn't a christian i was baptized a catholic went through the catholic system but i wasn't a christian and every so often i see these people not always but far too many times saying that they are moral, that they are Christian, and they turn around and start quoting Freud or Jung, or they start speaking about evolution. 
And I think yeah. to myself, why are these people so deluded? But more importantly, why are such conservative hosts unable, unwilling to challenge them? And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? That's a fair question. If your own family won't believe you, if your own family are not saved, why should the body of Christ listen to you? Why should anybody listen to you? If you can't rule your own family, how can you rule the church? And here Moses is very much aware of his limitations. He was such an incredibly meek man. He wouldn't stand up and brag about his morals, being a very moral man, and then turn around and attack creation, turn around and start pushing evolution, turn around and start citing uh, Freud and uh, Jung and other unsaved psychiatrists and psychologists and quacks. These people need a reality check. Look at verse 13, if you will. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, and gave them a charge unto the children of Israel, and unto Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I will give you a charge. On my orders, charge. Now you know what that means, don't you? On my orders, move. Go. The Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron. And your Aaron wasn't really needed. Aaron was more of a hindrance than a help. And gave them a charge, gave them an order unto the children of Israel. Speak to the children of Israel and unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This will be a twofold message. To bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I want them out of Egypt. I want them freed from Egypt. Physical slavery. They've been in the dust, in the mud for 430 something years. I want them out of that situation. I want sinners out of the mire. I want saved people to live for me. I don't want saved people living in sin anymore. I don't want saved people making excuses for sin anymore. In fact, Paul would say this from the book of Romans. He would say that how some slanderously, uh, slanderously say, let us sin, that good may come. And he goes and say, whose damnation is just. And that gets uh, put to those of us which believe in once saved, always saved. And we are accused every so often of giving a license to sin, which is wrong, of course. And people say that because we believe in once saved, always saved, and we certainly do, that somehow people can live as they choose. We don't believe that. We've never believed that. When it comes to our salvation, Christ becoming our uh, ransom, 1 Timothy 1, uh, 6, or Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, or 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21, it's a done deal. He would say on the cross, it is finished. It is done. Mission accomplished. And this goes back to standing and state. And just very briefly, I'll say this, that when you get saved, your standing in Christ is perfect. But your state may not be perfect. And if you want to know more about that, I would suggest you go back and read the Old Testament and take a look at someone like uh, Zedekiah or Manasseh. 14. These be the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These be the families of Reuben, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jakin and Zoar and Shul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. These are the families of Simeon, and these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and 
Kohuth and Merari, and the years of the life of Levi were 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimi, according to their families, and the sons of Kohuth, Amram, and Izar, and Hebron, and Uziel, and the years of the life of Kohuth were 133 years. And the sons of Merari, Mali, Mushi, these are the families of Levi, according to their generations. And Amron took him, Jochebed, his father's sister, to wife, and she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amron were an hundred and thirty and seven years. So, twenty again, Amron took him, Jochebed, Jochebed, his father's sister's wife. Therefore, the mother of Moses, Aaron, and their sister Miriam was also their aunt. And she bare him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amron were an hundred and thirty and seven years. Moses and Aaron were both Levites and descendants from Leah. For the New Testament, John the Baptist is a Levite through his father, Matthew, is a Levite, and also from memory, Barnabas was also a Levite. 21. And the sons of Ezar, Korah, and Nepeg, and Zikri, and the sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elzapan, and Zithri. And Aaron took him, Elisheba, daughter of Animadab, sister of Nason to wife. And she bare him Nabad, and Abu, Eliezer, and Ithmar. And you say to yourself, why are all these names in the scripture? Who cares about all of these names? Who cares about First and Second Chronicles? Why are we interested in all of these names? Well, these names are going to feed into the ultimate name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. If you know the name of Jesus Christ, he knows your name. I can't stress that enough. 24. And the sons of Korah, Azir, and Elkanah, Abishuf, these are the families of the Korites. And Eliezer, Aaron's son, took him one of the daughters of Putuel, his wife, and she bare him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers of the Levites, according to their families. These are that Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their armies. Paul speaks about being a soldier of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6, and he speaks about a shield, he speaks about a sword. He speaks about wearing the armor of the Lord. And here you're going to read about the children of Israel coming out in their tribes, like the 12 tribes of Israel referred to as armies. They will fight. They will fight physically. They will kill people. They will eliminate people. They will eliminate women and children. And such are very controversial passages. Most Christians don't like to speak about the bloody aspects of the Old Testament. They say that was for then, which of course it is. And for today, we follow meek and mild Jesus, which we certainly do. But Jesus Christ wrote the Old Testament. Or put it this way, the Spirit of God wrote both Testaments. And Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, said that all scripture is inspired of God. Thy word is truth. Scripture cannot be broken. And yet far too many people take scripture and they pick and choose which parts they like but here you've got 12 men not women and the apostles were all men not women women have never been called to be preachers pastors deacons or elders and people say but how about phoebe from uh, romans chapter 16 she wasn't a deaconess she was a servant 
of the Lord. But here, up to verse 26, you've got sons begetting sons, begetting sons, begetting sons. Matthew chapter 1, such and such begat such and such, who begat such and such, who begat such and such, who begat such and such. You say, what's it all about? It's for the Jew, of course. It's for the Jew to read and see where he fits into this. This is a Jewish book. This isn't a Gentile book. This is a Jewish book. And therefore, for a Jew reading Matthew chapter 1, or for a Jew reading Exodus chapter 6, or for a Jew reading First and Second Chronicles, he wants to know where his family fits into this. And for a Jew who believes the scripture, and there are some, of course, like both Testaments, not just the Old Testament, for a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ, it's imperative that he can see where he comes from and ultimately the ability for the Lord to record, to preserve everyone and everything, feeding, of course, into the judgment seats of the Lord, if you're saved, or the great white throne judgment, if you are not. Uh, 27, please. These are they which spake to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are that Moses and Aaron. Well, of course, there's no other Moses in the Old Testament. There's no other Aaron in the Old Testament. Moses is simply reiterating his credentials, like Christ would do time after time. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak thou unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say unto thee. Don't add to scripture. Don't subtract from scripture. Moses was guilty of subtracting from scripture. And I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. And here the Lord is saying, this time, Moses, you tell him what I told you. Don't you hold back anything, which is what Paul speaks about from the book of Acts, how he would preach the entire counsel of God to the body of Christ. But you don't preach the entire counsel of God to unsaved people. If you are a saved person and you speak to unsaved people, you don't speak to such people or share with such people the entire counsel of God. This is a sacred book. If you're unsaved, this book is closed to you. If you're unsaved, this isn't even for you. But once you get born again, this is your food. What does it say in Matthew chapter 4? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 30, and I'll close. And Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? Going back to Simon Peter, going back to Isaiah, going back to anyone who ever came into the presence of Jehovah, Yahweh, El Shaddai, anyone who was anyone who came into the presence of the one true God, like Yah. And you know, of course, Jesus means Jehovah saves anybody, male or female, Jew or Gentile, who came into the presence of the one true God, knew that they were in the presence of holiness. And we've lost that. We have lost that as Bible-believing Christians. We read about it uh, on a daily basis. We discuss it every so often, but we don't really appreciate it, how holy Almighty God is. And that's why you have to believe in once saved, always saved, because if you could lose your salvation, you certainly would. Also, what can you offer the Lord? What can you give him? Your filthy works? Your unrighteousness? Your so-called moral living? You've got nothing to give the Lord. What you can give him, of course, is your body once you are saved. Once you've been born again, once you have received Christ's payment for your sin, Christ 
has paid the ransom for your sins to the Lord. He has bought you back. He now has his boat. The boat has been purchased twice. The boat was purchased, it was lost, and then bought again. You were born, you were lost, and you were born again, bought back. He has brought you back. He's brought you back to him. You now belong to him. And he's very jealous as well. He's jealous over the church. He was jealous over Israel. And of course, you know that Israel would wander and stray from him, get into all sorts of problems, situations, false worship, uh, demonology. They would sacrifice their children to devils like Manasseh. And I will discuss Manasseh also during a future message. So these verses are dealing first and foremost with physical slavery. Contrast that to those of us which are saved in a spiritual sense. There are three stages to your salvation. I am saved. I am being saved. I am going to be saved. Which is what sanctification is. When you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, you were saved. And from our uh, standpoint, as far as we are concerned, we are already in the heavenly of heavenlies. We are reigning with the Lord, Ephesians chapter 2. But we are still being saved. We are being conformed to the image of God, the image of Jesus Christ, more specifically on a day-by-day basis. Sanctification. We are not yet holy. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he hasn't yet attained to the level of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. And of course, he would never do so. Because this is a fallen world. Only one person was sinless. And of course that one person was the Lord Jesus Christ. So we will close it there at the end of Exodus uh, chapter 6. And God willing, next week return to Exodus chapter 7.